after last week when we talked about Romans 5, uh, I posted a short clip of the sermon on my own Instagram uh, page, my own Instagram feed, just talking about what we talked about last week, how if you know Jesus Christ, the grace of God is sufficient to cover all of your sin. And, and where, where Paul ends Romans 5 is that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So there's no magnitude of sin that is too great for God to forgive, and there's no number of sins that is too many for God to forgive. Now, if you've ever been on social media, you know that the first people sometimes who comment on a post tend to be people who want to argue. And so I posted this, and somebody who I don't know, I don't think it was anybody in this room, uh, saw what I was saying about the, the magnitude of the grace of God, and their immediate response was, wow, Hitler must think that's really cool. Now, as you know, anytime you introduce Hitler into a discussion, that's your way of, of saying, I win, and, and all discussion must be shut down. So that's how I interpreted it. I didn't argue with the person. I learned a long time ago, I don't argue on the internet. That's a bad idea. So I just deleted the comment and uh, moved on. However, I will say that at the heart of that trollish comment is a legitimate question that a lot of people ask. And even some in this room have asked over the last several weeks after the messages about the infinite, superabounding grace of God. If it is true that I receive eternal life, as a gift of God's grace, no strings attached, simply by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and there is no sin too big, no number of sins too great for God to forgive. If that is true, that grace upon grace upon grace abounds to those who believe in Jesus, then what is to prevent me from simply sinning and sinning and sinning and doing whatever I want? What constrains me for a life of holiness if I know that whatever I do, God will forgive anyway. This question of the abuse of grace has been a question that many, many people have asked when, when we talk about the grace of God. The poet, W.H. Auden, in one of his poems, uh, he spotted the dangers of unlimited grace, and, and he said this in his poem. He said, every crook will argue, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. All of us wonder, is that how grace works? If I, like, if I like sinning and God likes forgiving, why shouldn't I just sin and sin and sin? All of us know people who have abused grace, not only spiritually, but just even in everyday life, we know people that in the face of radical generosity will take that as an opportunity to take advantage. I had a roommate in college that if I told him, you are welcome to eat some of the snacks that I brought home from the store, he would eat all of the snacks. And so I learned to hide my food from this roommate because in the face of generosity, he took advantage. All of us know people like that. And we know people who struggle with this concept of grace. Some time ago, maybe a year ago, I had a conversation with an individual who was involved in a very legalistic sect of Christianity. And his argument was that you are saved uh, by grace plus works. Yes, God forgives. Yes, the death and resurrection of Christ is necessary. But you also have to, have to earn God's favor by what you do. 
So we got into a conversation about the, the beautiful parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. And you remember the story, this, this younger son, he asks for his inheritance and he goes off to a distant land and he squanders the inheritance while his older brother stays at home and works the farm and does everything the way he's supposed to do it. And yet the father waits and waits for the younger son to return. And when the younger son finally comes to his senses and comes back home, the father runs to greet him and embraces him and restores him to the family. And I said, that parable, my friend, it is a story about the lavish, unlimited grace of God. And, and this person, he said, no, it's not. It's a story about how the older brother did what was right all along. And the younger brother should be more like the older brother. And I said, if that's what you think that story is about, you've grievously misunderstood the grace of God and the gospel message. And yet this, this idea of grace, it's, it's a tough one for many. And as I said, some in this room have asked me over the last couple of weeks, how do, we, how do we deal with this? If grace is so big, why shouldn't we sin? I have good news for you. You're not the first one to ask this question. Uh, in fact, this question follows so naturally on the heels of what Paul has discussed in Romans 1 through 5 that he now takes the majority of the next three chapters to address this issue of how and why we ought to pursue holiness as followers of Jesus Christ. And so chapter 6, all is devoted to this question. If grace is that big, why should I obey? Why should I even bother to obey? To be honest, I was a little bit encouraged uh, to some degree by the trollish comment on my Instagram post because uh, it told me that I, I think that, that the grace that I was preaching from Romans 5 was consistent with what Paul was preaching 2,000 years ago. Because Paul knew if you preach grace this big, there will be people who say, but wait a second, that's too big. Aren't people going to abuse that? And so now in Romans 6, Paul is going to answer that question. Why should we bother to obey? Why, as followers of Jesus, should we obey? Here's where we're going to land as we walk through Romans 6. We're going to see the gospel is good news because it sets us free from sin's power over our lives. In other words, the good news is, of course, the gospel, of course, is that Jesus died in our place, died for our sins, rose again. You can know him and have eternal life simply by grace through faith, by believing in Jesus. But one of the implications of the gospel in our lives is that if we understand rightly what God has done in Jesus Christ, we now have the capacity and the responsibility to obey. And in fact, the gospel and the power of the gospel can set us free from sin in a way that nothing else ever could. In fact, the law, Paul will say, a list of legal regulations could never set us free, but grace can set us free from the power of sin. If you understand the gospel rightly, it's not going to motivate you to sin. It's going to motivate you to love and honor and worship God with your life. The gospel is good news because it sets us free from sin's power over our lives. So follow with me. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6 and see why we should bother to obey. So starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? 
are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So there's the question. Paul says, verse 2, may it never be. This is Greek for no way, heck no. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that that he tells us is uh, we want to obey because we now have a new identity. All right, so this is where where Paul goes. He, He asked this question, hey, should we just continue in sin so that grace will increase? He says, may it never be. And then he goes, how shall we who died to sin still live in it. You can hear kind of the incredulity in his voice, the astonishment. Why would it be that a person who has died to the power and the presence of sin, why would that person even want to go back into sin? And then he goes on, and the fundamental argument that he makes is going to be this, that if you know Jesus Christ, and he'll say, if you've been baptized into Christ, we'll talk about that in a moment, you are a new person. He says, the old person died. The old self passed away. This is a way of saying the ways of thinking and living, your relationship or lack thereof uh, with God, everything about the old person died when you were now fully identified with Jesus Christ. So that there's a new you, that the transformation that has taken place because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your connection to him, that transformation is so radical and so powerful, it can be said, your identity has changed. You were once identified with sin and with death and with unrighteousness. Now you are identified with holiness and life and righteousness in Jesus Christ. You have gone from one to the other. Your identity is different. It reminded me of when I was in college as a freshman on the dorm. There was a student who lived across from me in the dorm. Another student, his name was Matt. Matt was a quiet, studious type of person. Kind of tall, kind of shy, dark hair, studied well. Uh, I I got to know him just a little bit uh, the first semester of my freshman year. And then we all went home for Christmas break. And when we came back, I saw Matt in the hallway, and Matt suddenly looked uh, radically different. He had dyed his hair blue. He had multiple piercings. He was wearing kind of darker clothing. And I said, hey, Matt, how's it going? And he looked at me, and he said, I am no longer Matt. I am Dave. And I said, oh, like you want to go by Dave? He's like, I am Dave. I always wanted to be Dave. I am Dave. And, and Matt was quiet and shy and studious. Dave was a partier. 
uh, Matt was, was kind of conservative and, and really quiet. Dave joined a punk rock band. Dave was, was a whole different type of person. It was, it was actually one of the more uh, radical attempts at identity change that I've ever seen. I think he went home over Christmas and he simply decided, I no longer wish to be who I was in high school or even my first year of college. I'm now a different person. I never really got to see how that trajectory played out in his life because Matt slash Dave failed out of A&M after our freshman year. I didn't ever really see him again. But, but I thought about that over the years, and I thought, you know, it's interesting because all of the changes that Matt slash Dave made to his life, all of these changes were superficial, weren't they? You can't really change who you are by dyeing your hair and piercing your ears and your nose and joining a punk rock band. You are still basically the same person. This was an attempt at radical change through external transformation. But what Paul says is that what's happened in Jesus Christ is you and I have been changed from the inside out. You are now a new person because you're identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And and here's, here's how he describes this. He says, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, free from sin and raised to new life, if you know Jesus, you have resurrected with him to walk in newness of life. Now that language for us is a little bit confusing in the 21st century, especially as Protestant Christians, because you kind of go, is Paul saying that there was something magical about baptism that actually transforms? Is there something about going under the water and coming up again that actually transforms? We, we celebrated baptisms this morning. One of my favorite things that we get to participate in. So, so these, these kiddos that were baptized this morning and the students who will be baptized second service, is there something that, that radically is transformed after they go down into the water and come up again? That's not what Paul is getting at. Instead, just as we've said, Baptism has always been viewed as an external sign of an internal reality. That something has already happened when you believed in Jesus Christ, and so you're baptized to demonstrate and identify with Jesus. In fact, the idea of baptism always had this idea of identification. You would dip a white piece of cloth into dye and pull it out, and now that piece of cloth would be transformed would be changed. That was the idea of baptizo, of being baptized. You're now identified with what you're baptized into. Now, here's what's important. In the early church, baptism and belief were tied very close together. It's not that you were saved by your baptism, but instead, when you, were, when you believed, you were expected to be baptized almost immediately as an initiation into the people of Jesus, and as a way of saying, I now identify myself with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me, just, let me give you one uh, illustration. Years ago, I had the opportunity to visit North Africa, and I went to ancient Carthage. And if you visit ancient Carthage, there is an old church that dates to about the second century AD. It's extremely old. And in this very old church, there is a, there is a baptistry, a baptismal. Here's, here's a couple of pictures of it. So you can see this very old, ancient, almost 2,000-year-old baptistry. Now, now I'm going to show you what you do. This is underground. 
So what you would do is you would come down some steps like this, right? And I thought I, thought I had one more. Yeah, there we go. There's a picture of it from above. Then you would come down some steps like this, enter the baptistry on one side, and then you would, you would exit out the other side. And so when they baptized people, quite often what they would do is you might enter before you're baptized wearing, wearing your ordinary clothes or maybe some dark clothing, and you would come down and you would then be baptized and you would be given a new white robe, and wearing that white robe, you would emerge into the sunlight on the other side. And the imagery is now you have gone from who you once were, wearing the old clothes of sin and death and unrighteousness, and now you have emerged into holiness and righteousness. You are a new person, buried in baptism, raised to new life. It's not that they believed that the baptism accomplished anything mystical or magical, but baptism was closely identified with this idea that I am now in Jesus Christ. And if I'm in Jesus Christ, I'm a new person. When Jesus died, he defeated sin. When he rose again, he validated that God accepted that sacrifice of his payment on our behalf. So that when you and I believe in Jesus, we are now so closely identified with him that sin now no longer has any power in our lives. And so Paul says, you know, Why, if you've died to sin, would you even want to go back into it? So again, why should we obey? Because you're dead to sin. Why would you even, why would a a person who just rose from the grave be like, let me crawl back in there? Nobody does that. Because you died. Sin no longer has power over you. There's one thing that we know, and that is, if a person is dead, you can't tell them what to do and expect them to obey. Nobody walks up to a dead person and says, hey, I need you to, I need you to wash the dishes. Not going to happen. Likewise, Paul says, that's our, our relationship to sin and to death now that we're in Jesus. Another way of putting it is, is like this. Uh, shortly before my wife and I got married, I lived in an apartment with three other roommates, other guys. And honestly, the apartment was dirty. We didn't clean it a lot. It was pretty filthy. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of I enjoyed the fact that we didn't, we didn't have to clean a lot. Like, I liked the, the laziness. Like, it, somehow it just it made me happy. But then Shannon and I got married, and, and I noticed pretty quickly that Shannon had certain standards of cleanliness for the home that we moved into, the apartment that we moved into. And so uh, those standards of cleanliness, she, she does a great job, even to this day, of keeping our home feeling warm and homey and clean. Right? And, and at first, I was not a big fan of all the decorative pillows. Now I kind of like them. There's, there's always a pillow nearby if I need a pillow. It's always warm. It's always, it's always cozy. It's always clean. But that requires also some effort from me. Right? So, so in order to keep it that way, I've got to do uh, some cleaning and some, some work and some upkeep. And so sometimes I'm like, I, I'd ra- like I, the laziness sounds good to me. I would, like to, I would like to go back to that. But, but you know what, what happened um, after we'd been married a couple of months? I actually did go back and visit my old roommates in their old apartment. And as soon as I walked in, I thought, praise God, I live here no longer. <laughs> because although the laziness was appealing, the filth was not. And I realized I've been redeemed, set free. Right? I no longer have to live there. So the question is, Paul's going like, why would you go back and live in the filth when you've been cleaned and set free for holiness? Why would you want to do that? 
You went from death to life. You have a new identity. You are now re-identified with Jesus. Because you have a new identity, now Paul says you also have a new authority. In other words, previously you were under the reign of sin and of death. No longer are you under the reign of sin and death. You had a new identity. Now you have a new authority. Follow with me, verses 12 to 14. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So he says, look, in light of the fact that you're dead to sin, don't let it take charge. Don't let it reign in your life. You have a new master. And he says, so, so with your body, you previously submitted your body to sin. Here's, here's what he's getting at. And, and you may have noticed in the previous section, he talked about the old body of sin had been done away with. And, the, and there's a new person. Now he says, hey, take your body that you once submitted to sin and instead present the members of your body to God for the purpose of righteousness. Here's, here's what he means. If you think about the primary way in which you and I interact with the world, it's really through our body, right? Now, we believe we, we are spirit and we are flesh, right? We are body and soul, but the primary way that we express ourselves in the world is through our hands, through our feet, our, our mouths, our eyes, our ears. That is the primary vessel God has given us to obey him or disobey him. And he says, before you knew Jesus, you just, you submitted your body, the members of your body, to unrighteousness. This is what he will call the flesh later on in Romans chapter 8 or in the book of Galatians. The flesh is not your body, but the flesh is a mindset that says, I'm just going to use my body to do whatever makes me feel happy in the moment. And so I submit my body to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. But he says, now you don't have to do that anymore. You know why? Because you've been identified with Jesus. You've been set free. You now have a new master. So he says, I want you to take the members of your body on a day-to-day -day basis, your mind, your ears, your mouth, your, your eyes, your, your hands, your feet, and submit them to God to do what is right because you can, because you're alive, because you have new leadership, new authority. And he says, you do that now, you're no longer under the law, the old realm of the law where you tried to do what was right, but you could not because sin dominated you. You're now under grace, that the grace of God in Jesus Christ transforms us into people who love him in deeper ways. And so he says, take the members of your body and recognize you're not under sin anymore. You're under new management. When I was in junior high, I remember longing for the day that I would finish junior high and be able to get out. And part of that was, uh, frankly, gym class. I hated gym class. And I had a coach. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to call him Coach Johnson. That's not his real name, but uh, just to preserve his identity because I'm going to say this. This man was, was mean. He was cruel. And so, so often he would, not, it wasn't just that he made us exercise in hard ways or anything like that. He came up with like cruel nicknames for the kids. This was back in the day when if you complained, you know, if you complained to parents about this, parents would just be like, I don't know, whatever, just do what he says, right? It was a very different time in our country. 
I remember one time this, this man got, got upset at me because I accidentally left a dumbbell on a weight bench and, and he didn't like that because it would damage it and I get that. And he, he, he asked who did it. And when I confessed, I had to confess because he said if, I, if whoever did it didn't confess, we would all have to run laps uh, constantly the entire week. So I finally confessed. He picked up this dumbbell and he threw it at me. Now, fortunately, it didn't, it didn't injure me. It didn't really hurt me. But that was the sort of tyranny under which we live. And I remember the last day that I finished at that school, walking out at the end of ninth grade, and I thought, I never have to go to this place again, and I never have to submit to the tyranny of Coach Johnson ever, ever again. Now, here's what's crazy. Years later, I joined a gym. Isn't that crazy? Right? And, 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 and I joined this gym, and they, they made me do some of the same things. They, they, they were like, you need to do some push-ups and some sit-ups and, and run and, and, and jump rope and all of these things that I remember from gym class that were torture under Coach Johnson. But it was totally different management in the gym. And they were gracious, and they were kind, and they were encouraging. And it wasn't that I necessarily liked jumping rope. But I recognized there, there was a, a better trajectory in my life if I submitted to this leadership because this leadership cared about me and my well-being in a way that Coach Johnson never did. He was a despot. They were benevolent dictators. Very different. Right? And Paul says this is the transformation that we have undergone. You're under new management, new leadership. And so now you submit yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness, not because you're trying to earn his approval or keep out of trouble or avoid going to hell, but because God in Jesus Christ has forgiven you and now empowered you to do what is right. And where once you had no choice but to obey, now you can obey in Jesus Christ. And so you've gone from the despot of sin, from the tyranny of sin, into the gracious kingship of God in Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to see in this passage, where my gym illustration breaks down, is that I could always quit if I wanted to and just not do any of that stuff and not submit to any of these people. But Paul is going to say in the Christian life and in life in general, you will serve somebody. You will. There is no such thing as a free agent. You are either serving sin or you are serving God. You are always under authority. The question is, which authority on a day-to-day -day basis will you choose to submit to? And he says, now that you've been set free, why would you submit to sin instead of righteousness? To your flesh instead of to the gracious rule of God. So present your members day by day by day in the way you walk as members of righteousness to God. And, he, and here's where he's going to land this passage is that you need to recognize that the consequences of these two different ways of life, the outcomes of these two different ways of life are vastly different. So that as now I move from sin to righteousness and as I pursue holiness, I have a new identity, yes, that grounds it. I have a new authority that I submit to. But I also now, I'm going to have a new trajectory with my life. Follow with me in verses 15 to 23. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
may it never be. In other words, to paraphrase, just because I don't have a list of rules under the law, should that mean that I, I just shouldn't worry about being holy and I'll just continue to sin? Again, he says, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. In other words, pick one. And then he says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in other words, we're on a totally different trajectory. And again, he reiterates, you were once a slave of sin, now you can be a slave of righteousness. You don't have to obey the old master. And here's, here's where he takes us. He says, hey, do you remember, if you can remember before you knew Jesus, your old life of sin, or maybe even after you've come to know Jesus, you have struggled with sin. And he says, what benefit did that, did that give you? What good did it do for you? to engage in this life of sin. He goes, you didn't derive any benefit from that. There was no peace with God. There was no harmony with other people. There was only your own flesh and what you wanted to do. And that led to separation between you and God, devastation in your human relationships. It led to guilt and to shame and a lack of peace. That was the benefit you derived from sin. And he says, now you have an opportunity to pursue holiness and sanctification in keeping with the free gift of eternal life. To walk away from sin and to pursue holiness. And although we won't do it perfectly, the call is to grow and to mature and to progress toward greater holiness, sanctification, being set apart for God's purposes because here's the reality. That is what you're made for. That is what you're made for. That's why sin leads to death. And holiness leads to life and peace because you're made to reflect the image of God. And of course, the challenge is that sin sometimes seems like something that will benefit us, doesn't it? Sin seems attractive. And yet it almost always results in shame and loss and even death. My freshman year in college, another story from that time of my life. I, I lived with a roommate that I had kind of known growing up. And we realized the first couple of weeks of college, as many of you did, that all of a sudden there was freedom. 
from parental involvement. And so we were like, we can do whatever we want to do, right? We're free. Nobody's going to tell us not to do it. So we can do whatever we want to do. Now, we were not inclined. I mean, we were Christian kids who were not inclined to go indulge in, in a lot of real um, immoral activity, right? So we didn't, we didn't start drinking. We didn't start, uh, you know, sleeping around, any of those things. But we thought we're free. And so one thing we can do, one night we were sitting in our, in our dorm room and we were just talking and eating like chips and salsa. And we finished this whole bag of chips and salsa. And we realized if we want to right now at 2 in the morning, we could order pizza and eat the entire thing, and nobody can stop us. And so we did. We got on the phone, and we called the cheapest pizza place in town, which means the cheapest ingredients and the least quality pizza we could find. And we called at 2 a.m., and we ordered a large pizza, and we were like, this is life. We are free. And we ate the entire thing, and we were so proud of our freedom until our 8 o'clock class the next morning when all of that gunk was sitting in our body and we had to get up after being up most of the night and we realized what seemed like freedom actually led to consequences. And maybe there was a reason that mom had said, don't do that kind of thing, right? Because it led in a direction we didn't want to go. Now, now some of you know all too well that, that there are even darker places that sin can take you. Some of you have seen it in your life through, through various addictions or sins that, that seem to grab a hold of your life, whether it is something like overspending or debt because you have an idolatry of money or sexual immorality and pornography or anger that seems to rule your life and in the moment it feels good to vent that anger until you see the devastation it does in your relationships or gossip that separates friend from friend or simply a failure to submit the decisions of your life to the leadership of God through his word and the spirit. And now you feel confused and directionless because you're just trying to do your own thing. So Paul says it feels in the moment like it'll benefit you. And so you go, why shouldn't I just sin and sin and sin? Because grace will abound and I don't have to obey the law and I'm free, I'm free. Here I sit in my room, in my house and I'm free. And Paul says, don't you understand? That sort of freedom is leading you to death. It's leading you to shame. It's leading you to devastation. What benefit did you derive from the way of sin? No benefit, but the benefits of holiness are righteousness and peace with God and living for what he made you for, to know him, to honor him, to serve him, and to help others do the same. So Paul says, you died to sin. Don't crawl back in the grave. You, you escaped the tyranny of sin. Why would you submit your body to it again? You, you escaped the consequences of sin. Why would, you, why would you want to dive back into that? Right? Grace is free. Grace is infinite. Grace abounds. Eternal life is a free gift. That's why he reiterates that at the end of the passage. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the foundation. If God has given us eternal life, 
as a free gift, then live in keeping with who you are, that you've been given eternal life. That eternal life does not begin on the day that you die. That eternal life, if you know Jesus, begins today. Eternal life is a quality of life every bit as much as it is a quantity of life. And that means there is a way in which we're called and made to live where we will experience a peace with God and a hope for the future and a life that is greater than the life of sin in ways we cannot even imagine until we say day by day by day, God, what I want to do is present myself to you. You are my king. You made me. You called me. You redeemed me in Jesus Christ. You will raise me from the grave because I have been identified with Jesus in gratitude and worship for all you've done. What I'm going to do now is turn from sin and turn toward holiness because I know that's the best way. And now I can. I can. And in chapters 7 and 8, Paul will, will talk about how we can through the power of the Spirit, that you have new capacity. But meanwhile, he says, what, what I want you to do then is he says, I want you to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to righteousness. So remember who you are. He says, I want you to remember who you are. If you don't know Jesus Christ, Paul in this passage again, he reiterates the gospel that this type of transformation, it cannot happen through just trying to run on the hamster wheel of obedience just through muscling down and trying to do the right thing. You can't earn God's approval. And so all who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, he says, you have eternal life if you've done that. If you've not done that, that's the call of this passage. If you have trusted Jesus, he says, I want you to remember who you are. Baptized into his death, raised to walk in newness of life, you are a new person. The old Matt, the old you, the old person has passed away. The new person is alive. So live as the new person. Remember who you are. Remind yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. The old me was crucified with Jesus Christ. The new me has resurrected with him. I am not who I was. And so I don't have to obey sin. And then he says, present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. What does he mean? Again, present your members to him on a day-by-day-by-day -by -day -by -day basis. Present your members to him. What does that look like? Well, it looks like spending time in his word so you fill your mind and your heart with his word so you apply it to your life. It looks like spending time in prayer so the spirit can speak to your heart and transform your life. You invest your time where your body is still and quiet before God. It looks like gathering together with the people of God, both in this room on Sunday and then in a smaller group throughout the week for the purpose of accountability and transformation. It looks like saying no to sin on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can pursue the righteousness of Jesus Christ, these spiritual habits that will shape and transform your life. I don't know if any of you have, have ever moved from one house to another house or from one workplace to another workplace, and you find yourself for the first couple of weeks driving to the old one. That's happened to me several times. When we moved into this building, for, for some like 20 years, I had officed 
over at our Anderson campus. And so for the first couple of weeks, I would find myself just habitually driving to my old office. And I would get over there 20 minutes away from here and pull up and go, shoot. And then I'd have to turn around and drive all the way back. And it took weeks for me to retrain the patterns of my brain to drive to the new place. This is what Paul is saying when he says, now present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Stop driving the old paths. We are people of habit. So build new habits, habits of holiness. And that may require, by the way, getting help. You may need to tell somebody for the first time of a sin struggle in your life that you say, I just can't seem to lick it. And I need help. And I need prayer. And I need accountability. You may need to go to a program like Celebrate Recovery or see a counselor to help overcome some of these old habits and patterns. But Paul says it's worth it. Whatever you have to do, stop presenting your members to sin. Present them, present them to God as instruments of unrighteousness, not to earn God's approval, but because he's given it to you in Jesus Christ and you are made new, so live like you're new because that's the pathway of life and peace and hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, we don't want to be people who take the grace of God lightly. We are thankful that we are saved by grace through faith alone because of nothing we've done. But we also pray, Father, that we would not live as if we're still subject to sin and death because we died to sin and death and we've risen again with you. Help us live for what you made us for, to honor and obey you. Lord, give us strength through your spirit to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.